Good morning. Uh, hopefully you got your Bibles with you. If you do, I encourage you to grab them. Open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. That's where we're going to spend uh, the majority of our time uh, this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you probably have a smartphone, and you can download Uversion app or something like that, and that would be a great way to follow along as well. And, um, and yeah, we'll be in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 as we can continue our uh, series called New Life, going through the book of 2 Corinthians. I, I got to tell you something. Um, you know, I, I just want you guys to know that I am my mom's favorite preacher. Um, why are you laughing? I, I also want you to know that my aunt, I made top five for her. So she, she put, she even put it on Facebook, she put top five, which I got to be honest, I was a little disappointed. I thought top three, you know, my, my grandpa was a preacher, my uncle's a preacher. So I thought I'd at least get number three, but apparently top five. I don't know, maybe Chuck Swindoll's ahead of me or something. I, I'm not exactly sure. I might have to talk to her about that. Um, I, just, I just wanted you to know that, uh, just in case you were wondering whether I'm a good preacher or not, you know, their unbiased and, and very informed opinions of my preaching. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> humor aside, um, uh, you know, it's interesting because a lot of times in life, uh, we, 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 we're, we find that there are critics of us, right? And I'm not suggesting many of you are very encouraging to me, so I'm not suggesting that you criticize my preaching at all. But we do experience critics in life, right? And quite frankly, my mom's opinion of my preaching is not how I evaluate my preaching. Just so you know, as much as I appreciate it, and I'm sure she'll call me this week when she listens to the podcast and she goes, she, and she'll inform me about something, I'm sure. Um, but, but it, you know, that's not necessarily how I evaluate my preaching. But, you know, Paul faced a lot of criticism, regarding his ministry. And the reality is this, whether you are a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or a, an usher or a greeter or whatever it is, it, you, wherever you do ministry, wherever you lead in that way, you are bound to face some kind of criticism somewhere along the line. And Paul experiences. And I, I'm really thankful, by the way, to be able to read 2 Corinthians and to look and to watch the Apostle Paul who wrote the majority of the New Testament and was responsible in many ways. God used him and used his gift and his ministry to, to expand the church in all these different ways, to plant these churches and to give us much of our New Testament. I am thrilled when I read in 2 Corinthians that he faced criticism too. And I'm also thrilled when I get to read how he handled it. And so that's in, in, in part what we're going to do this, do this morning. But before we do that, uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear God, thank you so much uh, for this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And uh, we, we are so appreciative that we are able to read this and to understand it. Lord, help us to understand what Paul is going through, but help us also to be able to understand how we ought to respond in life when we face critics, especially when it comes to ministry and to our faith. And Lord, as we look at Paul and, and how he responds to the church in Corinth, not only help us understand in our mind, but help us to embrace these things in our heart. I pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, in, the, in, the, in this letter to, to Corinth, after defending himself earlier on in the book, and he, he last week we talked about chapters 8 and 9. We combined them together, which I would have loved to have separate out and done three or four Sundays in those two chapters but time doesn't always permit those things. And we talked about the generous giving of the redeemed as a reflection of the grace of Jesus Christ. 
Paul now turns back to his critics in this letter and, and begins to respond specifically as we move on in these chapters. He's going to respond to some false teachers that were around in Corinth and were teaching false doctrine. And so he turns back to that in chapter, one, or chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 1. And it says this, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when faced to face with you, but bold towards you went away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world, wa- as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. And those are some hard words in a lot of ways. As you begin to read those, we need to remember that Paul was criticized in in really significant ways by these people in Corinth who had come along and and commended themselves to the church and and uh, self-proclaimed themselves as as being special and able to speak and then then criticized Paul in his ministry and he comes back and he says, but I come to you by the humility and gentleness of Christ. Paul was about one thing, and it wasn't about winning the argument, although he does plenty of that. Paul was about something else. Paul wanted something different. It wasn't just about overcoming with facts and figures and and showing how, how, how he was right and how they were wrong, although he certainly does that at times. But he was after something else, because we fight for something else. We fight for hearts and minds, not votes and donations. I don't know if you noticed, but it's already election season. And it's, and I got to be honest, I'm already sick of it. How about you? <laughs> right? I mean, it is one of those things where, where I, I, I wish it was like, you know, football season, right? We just started like preseason for football. Like we know when it starts and we know when it ends. And it seems like election season has no boundaries. You know, it just, it just wears on you and grinds on you whenever it starts. And the politicians start start attacking each other and proclaiming themselves, promoting themselves. And uh, it gets exhausting. Exhausting. I gotta be honest, you know, there's, there's humor, by the way, in the text we just read, because Paul ha- makes this statement, and it's kind of a sarcastic statement. He says, I, Paul, who am timid with you and face-to-face with you, but bold towards you went away, that was sarcasm. Because that was one of the, that's one of the the, the criticisms that he faces. And so he kind of makes this sarcastic remark, and we're going to see that in the text in a little bit. And, so, and I like a little bit of satire. Any, any of you all like a little bit of satire from time to time? Come on, raise your hand. So the rest of you don't? Well, I'm in trouble because I'm about to show you some satire. So you can send your emails to jmccloskey at uh, gfol.org. But one of, my, one of my favorite satire sites is the Babylon Bee, and this came up before the Democratic uh, debate the other day, and I thought the, the headline was, was so funny. Nation torn between watching Democratic debates and sticking face in Blender. 
Now, I got to tell you, if it was a Republican debate, we could say the same thing. I wasn't just picking on the Democrats. We just don't happen to have Republican debates right now because I'd say the same thing about those, right? I mean, the debates are, are, I don't know, a bunch of promises that nobody plans on fulfilling and all that kind of stuff. And I, I just saw this, and I, I thought it, was, I thought it was, was pretty pretty funny. To be honest, I'm not sure what is more demoralizing, the debates or the pundits and the talking heads that have their spin afterwards, right? Whether it's the conservative side or the liberal side or whatever, it's, it's almost exhausting to watch them try to poke holes in each other and attack each other's character and, and this constant pontificating that's what my new favorite word lately when it comes to politicians, pontificating. They pontificate a lot. And if you don't know what that means, just go look it up and, and you'll like it, I think. Um, but they, they always go after each other. And no matter who it is, I always feel like politicians are spinning and manipulating just to get my vote. I, I constantly feel that way. And I don't bring this up to rip on politicians, although they're easy targets a lot of times. But because this is what was going on in the church in Corinth. There were the, these, these super apostle kind of people that were self-promoting and they came into Corinth and they, and they weren't really after people's hearts and their minds. They were after their votes and their pocketbooks. They were after something, something else and they were false teachers and, and they came in and they, they, were, they had good rhetoric and they came with letters of con, uh, a commendation. I almost said condemnation, but it's commendation. And they, they promoted themselves and they weren't after the right kinds of things. It wasn't for some noble cause, but they're just after attention and votes, if you will. The false teachers in Corinth. And, and just like Paul, we must fight for the hearts and the minds of the worlds around us. Not their votes, not their pocketbooks, but their hearts and their minds. That is what Jesus is after. And that's what Paul was after. And sometimes we, we read this text, and there's another similar text uh, in Romans that should be looked at and from different perspectives and sometimes I think we conflate the two I, I just think that because I'm tempted to when I read it and I, because, because it, it reminds me of, of, of the text in Romans because it begins to talk about the kind of battle that we're in, right? When it, when it begins to talk about for though we live in this world in verse 3 we do not wage war as the world does, right? It talks about a different kind of war a different kind of battle with different kinds of weapons and Paul begins to talk about that and he begins to talk about the kind of war we're in but our our weapons aren't swords right and that's kind of the imagery that Paul uses but he's not suggesting that there was an he's not suggesting that actual kind of battle because that's not what the critics were fighting with they weren't fighting with with swords but they were fighting with different kinds of weapons they were pro- trying to be dynamic and they were using their, their spin machine to try to spin their message to sound popular and to sound good to the culture around them. And they bought into the culture around them. And, and so they saw this low-hanging fruit and this, uh, this ability to use the, the influence of the culture to draw people away from the truth of God's word. And Paul says, we got to fight a different kind of battle. We have to fight in a different way. When we fight for the hearts and the minds of people, we're not using rhetorical tricks our arguments are different they're founded on a different way our arguments are are founded on truth on humility on taking every thought captive and by the way paul is not talking about his own thoughts 
He was talking about the thoughts of the people and the thoughts of the culture and taking them captive. We fight for those thoughts so that they become captive to Jesus Christ and they become in God's domain instead of out and being influenced by the world. They they begin to be influenced by the truth of God's word. So Paul comes not self-promoting, but with humility. Comes with a different kind of attitude. And I don't know if you've noticed, but politicians don't have that attitude. Have you noticed that? Humility is something that seems to be lacking in our, in our political world. Instead, we've created an environment where people like to self-promote. I will tell you this, though. We've created that environment in a specific way. Johnny mentioned the shootings that took place in Texas and Ohio. Trump, as you know, President Trump went there this past week. And I don't know if you know this, but at the places where he, where he went, they started chanting, and they started chanting, do something, do something, over and over again, do something, do something. Because we watch these tragedies, and it's a tragedy. And it's horrible. And it's the display of sinful and fallen humanity. And we watch, and our hearts ought to break at what happens. And people rightly are overwhelmed with sorrow and with hurt. And so they shout out to to President Trump, do something, do something. And setting politics about what should be done aside, that's not my interest this morning. But this is my interest because I think a lot of times we make a fundamental mistake. And the fundamental mistake we make as a culture is this, that we tend to take our political leaders and we deify them. We put them on a pedestal so high thinking that somehow Congress or President Trump can fix this problem. And there might be things that they can do, that they should do, that, that can help, and, and, and that's not my point this morning, but here's my point. Humanity used to be honest about what we do with leaders because we used to take kings and we used to, humanity used to make them divine, right? We used to assign them divine titles. In other words, we would take the king of a, of a nation or an empire, and, and I'm talking about humanity in general, and we would deify them. We would say, oh, they're like a god before us. Well, we don't do that anymore, at least not in the United States and most of the western countries around the world, right? We don't, we don't do that in title, but we do that in attitude. We run to the government, and we run to our leaders, and we say, fix this, fix this, fix this, fix this. Can I just be honest? They can't. They can't. They don't have the resources. They are not God. They do not have the ability to grab a hold of the human heart and to transform it and to give it new life. There's only one who has that power, and that is Jesus Christ. There's only one. Again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't ask our leaders to do things. We certainly should at times. But we ought to be careful. We set up an environment where we expect them to have all of the answers. And then they try to step into that. And whether they believe they have all the answers or whether they just pretend they have all the answers, that's what happens. And we we sit here and we listen to things like the debates, and it doesn't matter. It's the Democratic debates right now, and later it's going to be when the Republican candidate and the Democratic candidate get together and they debate, and they're going to have a debate, and they're both going to say, I have the answer, I have the answer, I have the answer, I have the answer. I can fix this, I can fix that, I can fix everything. They can't. They don't have the power. They are not God. 
And we need to remember that. But Paul, as he approaches the church in Corinth, and he talks about these critics who have come in, and they have set themselves up as the people who have all the answers. We can fix all of your issues, all of your problems. We, 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 we know what's wrong with everything that's going on. And if you follow our teachings and if you follow us, then you'll be okay. Then everything will go well. Sounds a lot like our modern-day politicians. And in the culture at the time, people valued bravado. They, they valued pride. They valued what we would, uh, in, in a negative way, call arrogance. They, they valued that. You weren't supposed to be humble. You were supposed to come and, and, and to be domineering almost. And yet Paul does something different. Paul comes in humility. He comes in humility as, as the text opened up. He comes not in weakness, but he comes in meekness. He comes not in haughtiness, but humility. And we should exemplify, as Paul did, the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5.22, where it lists that, it says, Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In the face of a world that will definitely criticize you if you stand up for Jesus, this is how we come. Not seeking to win votes, but seeking to win hearts and minds. How we handle ourselves in the face of that kind of criticism, matters a great deal. When we are tempted to get defensive, when we are tempted to fight and to prove them wrong, we ought to remember these things. And we ought to come in humility, in humbleness, exemplifying the fruits of the Spirit. I wonder if you've been criticized for your faith in Jesus Christ. But I want you to literally think about this for a moment and, 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 and think back. Have I been attacked at some point, especially recently, for, for my faith in Jesus Christ? And if you haven't, I might challenge you just a little bit and say, and say live out your faith more. Not that you want to be criticized, not that you want to be attacked, not that you want to be persecuted. Don't seek those things out. But there is a, a place to wonder, if, I, if I'm living for Jesus Christ, will I not at some point be ridiculed? I think at some point we will, if you live for Jesus Christ. And how do you handle that? Is it somebody you struggled with at work? Think of their name. I want you to think of their name. Who is that person? And this applies, by the way, beyond criticism of our, of our faith being lived out. It, can, it applies in other ways as well, other kinds of things. As a matter of fact, all kinds of criticism is an opportunity for us to exemplify what it is to follow Christ. Who is that person, whether it's at work, whether it's in your neighborhood? Maybe it's even someone here at church. What are their names? Have you approached them with humility or pride and defensiveness? Let's take the example of Paul and exemplify the fruits of the Spirit. But Paul doesn't just approach them with humility and humbleness. He does that, right? But it's, it's meekness, not weakness, right? He's not weak. But he's in control. He's self-controlled, right? He's, he's self-disciplined. And so he, he comes with humility, and he, and, and he doesn't, he's not trying to, to, to push himself. He's trying to push Jesus Christ and the gospel, which is what we should all be about. But he does defend himself. 
And specifically because they attacked his appearance, by the way, the way he looked. In verse 7, starting in verse 7, it says this, You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. For I do not want to see seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters, when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. Paul understood what it is, what it was to be authentically himself. Paul understood what it was to do Paul. And that's what, that's what he sought to do as a follower of Christ, as one to sought, sought only to proclaim the gospel and to honor God with all that he was and all that he did. He, he came and he said, I want to be the same when I am away from you as I am when I am with you. In other words, do you the authentic you? Do you the authentic you? That's what we ought to do. We ought to be us. Who are we, is the question. Remember, our culture embraces this idea of doing you, right? You do you, I'll do me, that whole thing. But the reality is this, that, that understanding the true sense of who we are matters a great deal. You have to do you, the authentic you. But you are not whatever you decide you want to be. It is not sitting in the dark and saying, well, I think I'll, I'm just going to be this. That's not how that works. God designed us in a specific way. He put us together in our mother's womb. He, he created us in his image. He brought us to a place where we, were, where we would come face to face with our own fallenness and our own sins so that we would receive the redemption of Christ. Did you notice who Paul said he was, first and foremost? He said, they say they belong to Christ, so also do we. In other words, his identity was not found in his ability to get up and preach. His identity was not found in his ability to write a letter. His identity was not found in his appearance. You know, there's all been speculation about what Paul looks like, and, and some suggest that he's short because his name has kind of a reference to being short, and some think he, he was bald or, or whatever. But the text, what the text says is this. The text says he was unimpressive. He was unimpressive in his appearance. And he comes to them, he says, you are judging by appearances. Of course, we might instantly go back to the Old Testament where God says, you, ju you judge a man by what he looks like, but I judge by their heart. And Paul was making reference to that. Was he bald? I don't know. Did he carry himself with a limp from the, the flesh in the wound, or, or the wound in the flesh, the thorn in the flesh, whatever that was? Did he, did he limp, or was it something physical? Could they, could they see it in his presentation? Did he have a soft voice? Was he not able to, to really, uh, you know, fill the room? Sorry that I fill the room too much sometimes. I apologize. Well, what was it about him that was unimpressive? It was it that he came with plainness and simple arguments and he, and he wasn't rhetorically powerful or, 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 or he didn't have the spin machine working where he could really spin things around and, and bring things about to his man. I don't know exactly what it was, but whatever it was, when, they, when he came before them, they thought he was unimpressive, or at least that's the picture they paint. Do we judge people by 
the way they look and present themselves? The answer is yes, isn't it? We do a lot. We judge people by how they dress. We judge people by how they do their hair or their makeup. I mean, how many times have you, have you made a comment about this person or that person? Oh, I, I, that's, you know, they shouldn't do this with their hair. Or they, or they shouldn't do that with their makeup or, or whatever, ladies. You, you've probably done that a few times. Guys have probably done that too, maybe a little bit less than the ladies. And they might be more observant in that area than we are. But you've done it, haven't you? What about the way people dress? I mean, how many times have you been driving down the street and you, and you see somebody dressed in a particular way and, and you make automatic, automatic assumptions about who they are, about what they do, or about their character, about their personality, about, about what they might sound like? We do it all the time. All the time. But it's not just those things. How about the color of people's skin? And the assumptions and the biases that come with that. How about people's weight, their beards, whatever it is, their glasses. We oftentimes come and we make judgments about people and inappropriately so about the way they look. But we should take Paul's challenge to the critics seriously. When he accuses them of judging by appearance, we have to stop and remember that God judges by the heart. And though we cannot see the heart in the way that God can, we can extend grace, and we can extend kindness, and we can withhold judgment on simple things. The critics were judging Paul by the way he looked, but his identity didn't come from his appearance. His identity was found in Jesus Christ, right? He said this, if anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. We need to see people through God's eyes. You were created in the image of God. Do you find your your worth, your value, your identity in who you are without Christ or who you are with Christ? Because we need to come back to the place where we understand that I am created in the image of God. You are created in the image of God. You are co-heirs with Christ. If you have put your faith and trust in him and the blood that he shed, you are co-heirs with him. He, he's your brother in a sense. Like, like you're, you're kind of like your, your older brother, so to speak. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been adopted into God's family. That's where we find our identity. Not in the way we look. Not in the ways this world says that we should. So you be you, but be you as a follower of Christ, in and out of season, on Facebook and in person. Ooh. I'm pretty sure Paul would have put Facebook in there if it was around, right? I'm, I'm the same to you as uh, when I am on Facebook as I am in person. When it's popular, when it's not, when confronted with critics and praised by encourages, be you all the time and everywhere, but be you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Find your identity in him and seek to be Christ-like in all that you do. That's who we are intended to be. That's who we're created to be. So you do you, but do that you. Not the fallen you. Not the without Jesus you. Paul goes on. Verse 12. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. Those are his critics. 
When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you. We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory. Now I want you to listen to verses 17 and 18 carefully. But let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. In other words, it's not about your resume. It's about your reference. Paul had an impressive resume. I don't know if you, you realize this, but his resume was impressive, right? I mean, his teacher was, was, was famous, and he, he, was a, he was a Pharisee. He was a Jew of Jews. He came from the tribe of Benjamin. He had all these accolades in, in a professional way, right? He had a great resume. He could very well have come to the church in Corinth and said, do you remember my resume? Do you remember all these things that I've done? Do you remember who I am? Do you remember who my, my teacher Gamaliel was? Do you, do you, he was famous. He was well known. He was one of the best to learn under. That's who I learned under. I have a great resume. Are you forgetting about my resume? But he doesn't do that. It's not about the resume. You see, these, these critics, they came with letters of commendation. They came with, they came with these letters to promote themselves. You know, instead of putting on, on Facebook these great things, because we all, we all know that we, we do this. We, we self-promote all the time, don't we? We self-promote all the time. We go on Facebook, and, and, we, and we put this. Do you, do you ever put a bad picture of yourself on Facebook? I mean, maybe if it's funny, right? But even that. Even the bad picture when it's like, oh, look at this funny picture of me. Oh, yeah, look at it. I got 27 likes on my funny picture. It's all about self-promotion. I mean, Facebook, if you think about it, Twitter, whatever it is, you know, uh, all, all these social medias, what, what have they tapped into in the human spirit? And I, look, I have, Facebook, I have Facebook, I have Instagram, I, I have Twitter account. I, I never check my Twitter account. But, you know, but I, I, have those, I have those things. I'm not saying don't have them, but, but think about what they've tapped into into the human spirit. What they've tapped into is this, this idea of, of wanting to be connected, wanting everybody to know who you are, wanting everybody to like you. You can pre- present yourself in the best way possible, trying to get likes and trying to get shares and trying to get all of these different things. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be on there, but we ought to recognize what it's tapped into because it hasn't tapped into the best part of us most of the time. It's tapped into this pride and this need to lift oneself up much of the time. So we need to be careful when we use those things. Because we build resumes, right? We, whether, it's, whether it's on Facebook or in, our, in the professional world, and we get a certification for that, and we go and we get a college degree for this so that we can get a great job because we have a great resume. And I mean, think about this. We start when our kids are young, and for those that have 
that are going to college for the first time or in high school and starting to think about college and, and those kinds of things, we're already thinking about what's my GPA so I, that I can get a great scholarship so that I can go to this great school so that I can get this piece of paper that says I've learned all these things so that I can put it on my resume. And I, if I'm a part of this group and I'm a part of that group and I've done this and I've done that, and so I can have this great thing when I apply for this this uh, scholarship, I could put this great resume out, if you will, and it's not a resume per se, I know that, but it's basically a resume. It functions in the same way when we, when we apply for those scholarships and we get all these things. And then we put all these professional accolades that we've gotten on our resume so that we can turn it in and so that somebody sitting behind some desk some, somewhere will go, oh, wow, look at all the things that this person has done and look at this resume and then they'll hire them. And Paul says, I'm not interested in the resume, I'm interested in the reference. I'm interested in the reference. The reality is this, we're all building resumes. Or as Paul's critics did, they commended themselves, it says. They built their resumes, but Paul wasn't concerned about that. He wasn't concerned about the impressiveness of their resume. And in verse 18, he reminded them of that, and he says, but let, or 17 and 18, he says, but let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. See, the Lord was his reference. That was his reference. He says, don't look at my resume. It might be impressive, but that's not the point. The point is my reference, and Jesus is my reference. The God, God is my reference. He's the one who gave me this ministry. Notice it doesn't say that he didn't boast, but he didn't boast beyond certain limits. In other words, he boasted in Jesus Christ. He boasted in the ministry that God had given him for the sake of glorifying God and bringing up the gospel and presenting the gospel. That's what Paul was about, and that's what he boasted in. And it's okay to boast in those things. Paul is only able to lead and do ministry because he is more concerned about hearing his Lord and Savior say, well done, my good and faithful servant, than he is in hearing the accolades of people. He's only able to stand up to criticism because he does not seek the praise of men, but the commendation of his Lord and his Savior. May we too have that in our minds, in our hearts. It's not about who we impress. As much as I love it when you guys come and say, oh, wow, that was a great sermon, John. Can I be honest? I'm not here to impress you. That doesn't mean stop giving me compliments. Okay? But you're not my primary audience. I'm here to serve Jesus. And wherever you go, when you step outside these doors or in these doors for that matter, you are not here to impress the person next to you. You are not out in the world to impress your boss even. You are out in the world working and operating and living your life in a way to honor and glorify God. So at the end of the day, the words you will hear from God are, well done, my good and faithful servant, even if that means your boss says you didn't do your job. That's a hard place to be, isn't it? It's great my mom and my aunt like my preaching. Even my, life, my wife likes it once in a while. And I love it when some of you compliment me and don't stop, but your accolades are not what is most important. The truth, truth must be lifted up. 
And false, te- false teachings, as we move forward, must be stamped out so that people recognize the goodness of God among their own depravity. I preach the gospel so that people will respond to the life-giving, life-changing redemption that can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ is new life. Jesus Christ, Jesus The internal divine son of God took on human flesh and he came to this earth and he went to the cross and he shed his blood and he went to the grave and he didn't stay dead. I'm pretty sure I went to Israel and checked. He rose from the grave, presenting himself to more than 500 people, showing himself, saying, I am alive, I've conquered sin and death. And and he prepared the way for us so that we might go be with the Father for eternity. We might might be in the new heavens and the new earth. He provided the way that sin might be covered, that God's justice might be satisfied, so that our righteousness is not our own, but it's received from Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message. That's what we proclaim. And there is nothing, by the way, deeper than that one truth. There is no biblical truth. There's no Greek, original Greek language or original Hebrew language deeper than the truth that I just shared with you that Jesus Christ died for your sins and prepared the way for eternity and prepared the way for redemption and prepared the way for repentance that you can live new life in him. That's the gospel message and there is nothing deeper than that truth right there. Let's pray. Dear God, you are so good and gracious and kind and loving. And Lord, I know that we will all face critics. Lord, thank you for this message that we can look at how Paul handled himself. And Lord, may we boast in the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we boast loudly. May we boast greatly. May we be bold in, in proclaiming the good news.